Okay, welcome everyone. This is uh, week number eight of the Gospel of John. So we have, uh, what do we have left? Six, this is six weeks, is that right? Yeah, six weeks, I think. Um, right, six, counting tonight, six weeks to get through the Gospel of John. So uh, let's have a word of prayer. And then we will begin. Our Heavenly Father, thank you again for this privilege of being your children and being able to hear from you as we look into the Word of God as you have given it to us for our own sanctification, our growth, so that we can tell others about it. We thank you for this gospel, and we pray that as we go through this, we will have a greater understanding of our Lord Jesus Christ, His ministry on earth, and the uh, emphases of this particular gospel. Uh, and it will teach us many things that will enable us to serve you and to please you in the days ahead. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So we're looking at... Uh, Week eight here, and we are um, looking at chapters 13 through 17 now, the private 
instruction. Uh, verse, and we're looking at actually right now chapters 13 and 14. Remember, we are in chapter 14 here, and as far as the timeline, we're at the very last week of Christ's life here on earth. In fact, this is uh, Christ in the upper room. Um, this would be uh, on Thursday uh, uh, before his crucifixion on Friday. And so um, we said the upper room is probably somewhere in the southern part here, most likely, of the city of Jerusalem, the old city of Jerusalem. If you look at this kind of dotted line, this is, uh, this is uh, where the city walls were at that time. Came up around here, around here. There's a wall here that eventually was built, but it wasn't there during the time of Christ. Uh, that wall was, was uh, not there. And so we think somewhere in the lower city, somewhere around here, if you go to Jerusalem today, the walls don't match this exactly. The walls have changed over 2,000 years. And if you go to Jerusalem today, the southern wall is, runs right across here. This part where the upper room is not actually in the old city walls or the walls. The, you know, the, the city has changed hands. The, the Muslim took it over, you know, and uh, they, Suleiman the Magnificent, kind of redid the walls and built the walls. So the walls have changed quite a bit over time. But we talk a little more about that later when we talk about the place of the crucifixion. And the last time we looked, we're looking at chapter 14, the promise of the Spirit, verses 16 through 26 was the section that we're in. We dealt with verses 16 and 17 last time where uh, Jesus says, I'll ask the Father, he'll give you another advocate, the parakletos. You know, remember we mentioned that word is translated different things in different translations. The King James is a comforter. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it has a number of different meanings. Um, another advocate, someone to be with you, to help you, and to be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world can't accept him because it neither sees him nor him, but you know him. He lives with you and will be in you. And so tonight we left off, we're looking at uh, the significance of the Spirit, verse, chapter 14, verses 18 through 21. Let's look at that, verse 18. Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Uh, because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in the Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Um, I'm just making a note to myself here. Um, so Jesus says, I say, doubtless Jesus' disciples still feel abandoned. He consoles them. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. He's referring to his resurrection appearances. Jesus will come to them. They will see him because of Jesus being alive. 
He says, because I live. As a result of the resurrection, the disciples will live eternally. That is, they have spiritual life because of his death and resurrection. On that day, the day of the resurrection, they will come to realize that Jesus is in the Father and they united with him. Now, they know these truths to some degree. Jesus has been teaching on these truths all the way through this gospel. But he says here, on that day you'll, you'll come to realize, and that's probably a good translation of the Greek word there. So he's talking about a greater realization of the truths that he's been teaching them. After the resurrection, the day of Pentecost, suddenly they, you know, with the Spirit com comes in the sense of this apostolic anointing that I'm going to talk about. Um, you um, remember Ken was talking about that <laughs> this week, this past, in his past sermon, that apostolic anointing or that theocratic anointing, we call it in the Old Testament. We'll talk more about that. But um, so um, they know uh, these truths, but they're going to come to really embrace them fully. You know, that's true for all of us. We know what that's like. We hear a truth in the Bible. We learn about a truth, but some, it takes time sometimes to really, through experiences and other things, we come to really understand it fully, grasp it, it has a, a deeper significance for us. And that's what he's telling them. Uh, he does say here, uh, um, before long, the world will not see me anymore. And he's going to mention that again here. Notice, whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love them and show myself to them. In verse 15, Jesus said, If you love me, keep my commandments. He repeats that truth again. Genuine, genuine disciples are characterized by obedience to Jesus' commands, which for us, of course, are set forth in the New Testament. Genuine disciples are also loved by the Father. Jesus will show himself to his disciples in his resurrection body. So what he's emphasizing here and back in verse 18 or verse 19 is, you know, he's going to come to them. They're going to see him, but the world will not see him. Uh, it, it, appears, it appears from what we see in the book of Acts, in the, in, in, in the Gospels after the resurrection in the book of Acts, that Jesus never appeared to unbelievers after his resurrection. He says here, uh, the world will no longer see me. Now that, of course, obviously means he's leaving. He's leaving. He's not, he's not uh, going to be around for the world to see him. Um, but the fact that the world will not see him anymore, and if you look at the book of Acts and so forth, he only appears to his disciples during that 40-day period. It's, it's, uh, you know, it's our, you know, to Christians, to believers. You know, Paul says there in 1 Corinthians 15, who he appeared to. But he appeared to brethren, 500 brethren at one time. But they were all believers. It, it seems like he did not appear to unbelievers at all. Well, then the question of Judas, not Iscariot. Uh, then Judas, not Judas Iscariot, said... But Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus replied, anyone who loves me 
will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, <clears throat> and we will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are my own. They belong, are, are, are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. As I say, this Judas was apparently the man known elsewhere as Judas, the son of James. <clears throat> so Judas is a, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> excuse me, just a minute, let me get a drink here. Um, Judas is kind of the Greek equivalent of Judah. So you remember Judah in the Old Testament, there would be a lot of people named Judah. Um, naturally, that would be a famous name. And so Judas is a fairly common name. So we think of Judas, I mean, not too many people would name their child Judas today, you know. So there's certain names you wouldn't, you wouldn't name. Uh, I wonder if, yeah, I was going to say, does anybody name their child Adolf in German anymore? Maybe they do. Maybe they do. It's probably a common name. But once a name gets a certain reputation, you just kind of shy away from that particular name. I remember there was a, there was a show on TV used to be called uh, The Great American Hero. And uh, um, it was about this guy who discovered he had these superpowers. You remember that? Uh, uh, I love that show. Greatest American Hero. You had that hair like that? Well, the problem was in the show, his name was Hinkley. Hinkley. Well, then a guy named Hinkley shot Reagan. <laughs> so they had to change his name. I forgot what they changed his name to. I don't know, but they, they moved it to, they, they, changed, they, they started calling him something else in the show, you know, because that name. And so, uh, but in that day, Judas was a fairly common name. Uh, and, you know, if you look at all the Gospels, I'm not going to take time to look at all of these, but it's pretty obvious to people who have studied this. <laughs> that this is Judas, son of James, so another Judas, not Judas, son of, you know, not Iscariot, but a different Judas. And he's also given another name, Thaddeus. Um, so this is, some of the disciples have a couple of names, like Matthew and so forth. Um, he asks, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? He is thinking in terms of the outward manifestations of the Messianic kingdom that would certainly have worldwide effects. Remember, they're still expecting this. He's the Messiah. He's talked about his death. That's still a problem for them. They can't quite... How does that fit in to your Messianic kingdom? And remember, even in Acts chapter 1, after the resurrection, and he's getting ready to leave them, they say, are you going to restore the kingdom now? <laughs> you know, what? When is it, you know? We've been expecting this. And he says, no, it's not, it's not, uh, it's, in the, it's in the Father's timetable to do that. So they, that's what they're expecting, this kingdom, this messianic kingdom. Uh, Christ answers that this, the manifestation of the disciples, those who love him and obey his teaching, would be a spiritual one in which he and the Father would make their abode in the hearts of all believers. Um. So during Christ's bodily absence, of course, um, the fact the Spirit would, would be, would make, He makes His presence to us. He, he comes to us. The triune God, in fact, indwells us, as we talked about that. Um, 
Jesus is not denying here that the world will never be confronted with him again. You know, he's not, this is not an absolute sense, but that, as we said, that has to await the divine timetable as he tell, tells the disciples in the book of Acts. So for right now, he's going away. He'll come, come back and show himself to them, but not to the world. He's not going to show himself. There's no messianic manifestation to the world here, messianic manifestation. Then he mentions the ministry of the Spirit, 1425 through 26. <clears throat> All this I have spoken while still with you. But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. All right, this is, a, this is a quite an a interesting verse. <clears throat> um, I say here, one of the ministries of the Holy Spirit to believers is called illumination. We've, we've talked a lot about, we've mentioned illumination. I've taught a couple of classes here just on the topic of illumination. I would define illumination as that ministry that enables the believer to understand the significance of what the Bible says and accept that it is true. Here's the key verse on illumination. 1 Corinthians 2.14, the person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. However, some have understood illumination to have a much broader role, including revealing the meaning of Scripture. They point to John 14.26, which says, um, the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send, He will teach you all things and remind you of everything I have said to you. So they point to that and a similar statement that we'll see later in John 16, 13. But when He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you into all truth. He will not speak of His own. He will speak only what He hears and He will tell you what is yet to come. Phrases like, He will teach you all things, He will guide you into all truth, are understood as conveying the meaning of Scripture to the believer. But these verses, I say, are better addressed as applying to the 11 disciples. <clears throat> so what's going on here? I remember the first time I was confronted by this particular problem was I was in college, Bible college. I was in college, and then we had a, the speaker, the dean of the Bible college got up, <clears throat> and he was speaking, I think, on Hebrews 6 which is a, you know, a difficult passage there about the falling away. So, and he said, you know, you may not agree with my interpretation, but if you were taught by the Spirit, you would. <laughs> if you were taught by the Spirit, you would. Now, I was just a student, just a little old student at that time, but I knew right away that was, had to be wrong. All this had to be wrong. And, and uh, you know, the point is, if the Holy Spirit can teach us what Scripture means, then I'm wasting my time here. <laughs> you know, and every, everyone who teaches the Bible is wasting their time, and I wasted my time going to seminary and all that because if the Holy Spirit can just teach us directly what Scripture means, well... That would be wonderful. I mean, you know, we just read a verse and the Spirit just tells us what it means. Now, some people I kind of think this in their minds. No one really can kind of practice it because it doesn't work. You know, you just can't, it just doesn't work that way. 
And so they have a misunderstanding of illumination. So we might define illumination this way. It's the work of the Spirit that enables us to understand Scripture. Now, I use that word understand for, for a particular reason there, because what do we mean by understand Scripture? See, I could, I could say, yeah, I agree with that if, if, you, if you let me define understand. I mean understand the significance of Scripture. Notice I, word that, I use that word significance. So we make a distinction between meaning and significance. Meaning is what the words actually mean by the use of nouns and verbs and adjectives and, you know, the actual meaning, the, the kind of the basic a bare meaning of the words. We can, and, and all of us can, and, and all of us can understand the meaning. Even unbelievers can understand the meaning of the scriptures. Even unbelievers can understand the meaning. What they don't get is the significance. You say, can really unbelievers understand the meaning? Well, 1 Corinthians 2.14 says they can. The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God. See, that word means accept means they don't welcome the things that come from the Spirit of God. They don't see the significance of those things, but considers them foolishness. Well, why would they consider them foolishness? Because they understand what it means. <laughs> if they didn't understand anything, they'd just say, I don't, you know. But no, they understand what it means. They understand, an unbeliever, you know, they can, and there are many, many unbelievers who understand what the Bible is saying. There's plenty of books written by unbelievers. There's been hundreds and thousands of books written by unbelievers. At the seminary where I taught, we had plenty of them. You can go there and find a book written by an unbeliever who's explaining what the Bible means. And uh, they just say, that's nonsense. You know, that's just nonsense. So I can go to a book that'll say, the verse we read in John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Most, most unbelieving Bible scholars will say, John's teaching the deity of Christ there. We said the Jehovah's Witnesses, they try to twist the verse and say, it's not really, it's just saying the Word was a God. Remember that? Well, most, most scholars, most Bible scholars who are unbelievers at Harvard and Yale <laughs> and the big institutions, University of Michigan. They, they wouldn't say that. They would say, yeah, John's teaching that Jesus is God, but it's just not true. It's just not true. See, they understand what it means. They just, it's just not true. See, an unbeliever can read that Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea. Any unbeliever can pick up the Bible. Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea. Well, if you look up, you know what Bethlehem is, you know what Judea is. You don't have to have the Holy Spirit to understand Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea. You know, unbelievers can understand John three sixteen. God so loved the world that He gave. You know, they can read that. They just don't believe it. <laughs> they just don't believe it. And why don't they believe it? Because they don't have that illuminating work of the Spirit. So as I said, you could define it as to understand the significance of Scripture and believe it as true. So when we get regenerated and born again, we have the Spirit, and the Spirit gives us 
an, an automatic acceptance of Scripture. We come to Scripture believing it. We may have verses that are, oh, that's hard. I don't quite get that. But we have a natural inclination to believe Scripture. We have a natural inclination. That comes from the Spirit. The unbeliever doesn't have that natural inclination. That's why Paul says the person without the Spirit does not accept. He doesn't welcome the things that come from the Spirit of God. They're just foolishness to them. You know. So it's not a matter that the Holy Spirit teaches us the, the grammar, you know, the meaning of pronouns. You know, if, you, if, you, if you see a word in Scripture that you don't know the meaning of, you, know, you see a word in Scripture, justification. Now you can pray all day, all night for 20 years, and you'll never find out what that word justification means. The Spirit won't tell you. You can pray, God, help me. What is that word justification? You'll never find out. That would be revealing the meaning. That's revelation. Revelation. God is not revealing anything to us today. He is illuminating the truth that He has given. He's already revealed it. He revealed it to the apostles and prophets, the Old Testament. We wrote it down. Here it is. It's all revealed. So we're not in the... In the we're not really revealing anything today. We're just understanding what's been revealed. So we're not in the revelation mode. We're, in the, we're not in the inspiration mode. It's been inspired. It's been revealed. We're just trying to understand it. That's the illumination part here. So what I'm arguing here is these verses can't be applied to you and I. Now why is that? Why can't they be implied? Because people will apply them, but why can't they? Well, notice what I say here. These, these two verses are better understood as addressing only the 11 believers. First, the first you in verse 26 will teach you all things is the same group as in the previous verse. So these things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. So, all this I have spoken while still with you. Who is the you there? That's the 12, right? That's, that's the 11 here, you know. All this I have spoken while with you, you see. So, he's talking to them. So, the first you in verse 26 is the same group as the previous verse. The, these things I have spoken to you while I was still with you, which only included the 11. Similarly, the you of 1613 he will guide you into all truth. That's that other verse. When the Spirit, when he, but when He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you into all truth. Is also restricted by the previous verse. I have much to say to you, more than you can now bear, to the eleven. So the context, the immediate context. Now, that gets tricky because some things that Christ says to the disciples can be true to us too. I mean, He can be speaking to them as believers. And since they're believers, a lot of the things He says to them can apply to us. Not everything, He says. Here's something that doesn't apply to us. So the you is restricted. Um, the fra number two, the phrases will remind you of everything I have said to you, verses 14, 26, chapter 14, verse 26. He will remind you of everything I said to you, and He will teach you what is you to come, is are no way 
applicable to all believers. So it's just not true that He will remind you of everything I have said to you. The Holy Spirit doesn't remind us of what Jesus said to the disciples. Now, some people try to use that and they'll say, well, you know, the Holy Spirit helps us memorize or remember Scripture. That's not what we're talking about here. Jesus is saying to the disciples, after I'm gone, He's going to help you remember what I said to you. Uh, and the phrase, He will tell you what is yet to come. No. The Holy Spirit does not tell us what is yet to come. He told the disciples and the apostles what is yet to come, and they wrote it down in places like the book of Revelation, and, you know, about the future and things like that. These ministries were only available to the apostles who wrote Scripture. These men would be Christ-authorized interpreters. The Spirit supplied them remembrance and the true interpretation of Christ's words. I mean, that's how they wrote the Gospels. It takes some special ministry to be able to write the Gospels and remember what Jesus said and write that all down after He's long gone, you know. That takes some special ministry. Uh, the Spirit supplied them remembrance and the true interpretation. Many things the disciples did not presently understood would be made clear. The Spirit would also reveal prophetic truths to them. He will tell you what is yet to come, things Jesus didn't tell them. All of these truths are embodied in the, uh, in the New Testament. I mean, the fact that the millennium will be a thousand years. Um, that's not revealed. Did you know that? That the Bible does not tell us that the millennium, the kingdom, is going to be a thousand years until we get to the book of Revelation. So you got that whole Old Testament. It talks about that kingdom, but it doesn't say how long or whatever it's going to be. Uh, it, it doesn't tell us that thousand years till we get to the book of Revelation. So there's new revelation here. This is revelation. All of these truths are embodied in the New Testament, which was received by the church on the authority of the apostles. John 14, 26 seem to speak of revelation and inspiration, not illumination. So I don't think these verses apply to you and I as Christians in the sense that the Spirit teaches us what is to come, reminds us of the words of Christ. That's, that's something for the apostles. The Spirit does illuminate our minds. We, we absolutely have to have that in order to accept Scripture, in order to see the significance of Scripture. I mean, when we read John 3.16, maybe when you were saved, I don't know, you may have read, uh, you, you know, you heard testimony of Christians. I read that, I, uh, who got saved? I read that verse a lot of, a long time, but it never, I never clicked. <laughs> I never understood it, they'll say. I read that verse many, but what happened? The Holy Spirit, illumination, they got regenerated, and then they understood, oh, I, now I see that. I mean, when we read John 3.16, it's different than when an unbeliever reads John 3.16. You know, we, we, it's, it's wonderful to us. We accept it. We see what, what it all means. We see the significance of it, what it means he gave his son and all that kind of stuff. So we can put all that together. We can, we can fit all this stuff together and make sense of it because uh, the Holy Spirit enables us to do that. I mean, I hear lectures, I hear people, I hear unbelievers, unbelievers, scholars talk all the time. And 
what they constantly are talking about is contradictions and well, that doesn't make sense and that's impossible, you know, that couldn't happen, you know, Genesis is just mythology, you know, we know that, you know, the world wasn't created in seven days, you know, that's just, to them it's just impossible. And that's because they're unbelievers, they're unregenerate, they don't have the spirit who, for us, enables us to accept it as true and see how it all fits together. Significant. So this is a tremendous ministry for the disciples and what is yet to come. And, you know, Paul, that's what, you know, 2 Timothy 3, all Scripture is given by, all Scripture is given, all Scripture is God-breathed. It's given by inspiration. It's the work of the Spirit. Well, then we see this uh, bequest of peace, verses uh, 27 through 31. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. So before leaving the disciples, Jesus bequeathed the priceless gift of peace. This is not the objective peace with God. Remember Romans 5.1, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. So there's peace with God. Romans 5 talks about the fact that we were enemies with God. We were God's enemies. There was hostility, but the, the work of Christ brought an end to that hostility. We were reconciled to God, Romans 5 by the death of His Son. So therefore, being justified, we have peace. So this is not, he's not talking about that peace with God that was accomplished through the expiation of sin at Calvary, though it's based upon it. So this peace, this peace of God, you know, is, it, it, it depends upon that. Everything, everything, every benefit of the Christian life is based on the death of Christ, His atonement. Emphasis here is on the inner subjective peace that calms the troubled heart. This is different from peace which the world offers, for that is dependent upon circumstances that are constantly changing. Whereas this peace, Christ's peace, is based upon His unchanging person and work. It's the peace that uh, garrisons our hearts and minds against the invasion of anxiety and, you know, we think of Philippians 4, don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God and the peace of God. That's what we're talking about here, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. <clears throat> so this is a peace the Christian can experience. Now, it doesn't mean we're always just peaceful. <laughs> Everything is great and hunky-dory, as we say down south. Uh, but... It just means that it's possible, even in the most difficult circumstances, to have peace because, as Paul says, we can pray to God, trust Him with our difficulties and problems, and we know He's in control. We know there's, 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 there's somebody who is in control, and God works all things for our good. We, we have those truths we know. But think about the poor unbeliever who is taught that we're just uh, a bunch of atoms, we're just material beings, and we're just here by chance, and we just evolve by chance, and 
you know, there's no God, there's no future, there's no nothing. Well, tragedy is really tragedy, you know, because you're just depending, in their world, you're depending upon luck to have a good life. You know, it's just whatever lucky circumstances you can have, if your life is good and it could go bad, you know. And so there's a reason to be wailing and gnashing your teeth in that kind of world. What a terrible thing. Verse 28, you heard me say, I'm going away and I'm coming back to you. If you love me, notice, if you love me, you would be glad that I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. I have told you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you will believe. The failure of Jesus' disciples to understand and trust Him is also a failure to love Him as they should. If you love me, I put contrary to fact, which just means this is a, a condition uh, that means it's, not, it's, it's, it's assumed not to be true. It's assumed not to be true. We, we, we do it in English too. In Greek grammar, there's a way to actually indicate it. In English, we just do it by context. Like, you know, we say, uh, let's see, how do we say uh, Well, I don't know. You might say, uh, someone might say, to uh, a child might say to their parent, well, I see, I'm trying to think of it. <laughs> um, uh, a wife might say to her husband, you know, or we might say to someone, you know, if you really cared about me, you would do this. If you really cared about me, the implication is they're trying to say, you know, you don't really care about me. If you really cared about me, you would do such and such. We, we state it in a way that it's assumed not to be true because I'm putting a trip, a guilt trip on you, you know, whatever. If you, if, you know, if you really love me or something like that, um, you know, if you if you really had any brains, you wouldn't, you wouldn't do what you're doing. You know, if you had any brains, the implication is you don't have any brains. You know, so that's what's going on here, which seems a little strange, doesn't it? Jesus says, if assuming you love me and you don't. They truly loved him as they should. They'd be glad he's going to the Father, since his departure ensures that they will he will take them to be with him forever. Remember John 14. I'm I'm going to go prepare a place for you, and I'm going to come back and receive you. Here Jesus says they would be glad. They should be glad that he's going that he's going to the Father because the Father's greater than I. So uh, the point being here is they don't love him. You know, as they should. That's the point. Uh, you know, if they really loved him as they should, uh, they would, they would, uh, they would be glad he's going away. If they really understood him and loved him as they should, and that's true for all of us. If we loved Christ as we should, we would our lives would be probably different. You know, there's always lacking of love and obedience to God that if we had it, we would probably conduct ourselves differently. And uh, so that's what he's, he's saying here. Uh, they should be glad uh, and not be so sad, not be so downcast. If they really saw the significance of his death, they still don't get that. They don't understand the importance of the atonement, what this is going to accomplish, what this is all going to mean. And he said, if you really understood that, you'd be glad that I am going to the Father. The Father is greater than I. 
Remember, the gospel has taught very clearly that the deity of Christ, he's equal to God. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was, was with God, and the Word was God. We talked about that. John 10, 30, you know, I and the Father are one. You know, I, you know we're one. We're, um, so it's, it's true that ontologically, remember that word means being or existence. As far as existence or being, all three members of the Trinity are equal in power, essence, glory. They're all God. But we're talking here about function. When he says, the Father is greater than I, we've seen this throughout the gospel, they function differently. The, fun the Father is functioning in a certain way. He sends the Son. In that sense, He's greater. The President of the United States is greater than I am. The President of the United States is greater than I am. He's, he's got an office up there. He's got power. Don't, don't laugh over there, Larry. You know, it's, it's <laughs> Yeah, I knew you were going to say that. It's debatable. <laughs> but you know what I mean uh, in that sense. Uh, pastor Ken is greater than I am. He's the senior pastor. I'm a pastor, but he's the senior pastor. So he has a greater position than I have. Pastor Ken is greater than you are in the church here, in the sense of only that he has this function. You know, he just functions. He has authority that you don't have. But not as a Christian, not as a being, not as a human being, not as a believer. We're just all equal as believers. We're, we're, we stand equal before God and all that. But we function differently. Some, some, some are given authority over others and so forth. And that's what we're talking about here uh, in the sense that the Father is greater in that function, uh, not in essence or being or anything like that, which we've talked about before. He says in verse 30, I will, I will not say much more to you, for the prince of the world is coming. He has no hold over me, but he comes so that the world may learn that I love the Father and do exactly what my Father has commanded me. Come now, let us leave. The crisis that was about to occur would be the first of many occasions when this peace that we just talked about, the peace of God, would be sorely needed. It would sustain them during His departure and enable them to see that as the Messianic Son was returning to His Father, um, to see that as the Messianic Son was returning to His Father. And the... Uh, crisis the next few hours, Satan would attack with full power. However, there was nothing in Christ that Satan could claim as his property. He could not accuse Jesus before God as deserving of death because of sin. So Jesus' death, this what seemed like a tragedy or an awful thing, which is not, but seemed like a punishment, which it was a punishment, punishment for our sins, uh, Jesus' death would be voluntary and it would occur because He delighted in the Father's will. It's not because of some, uh, something that He had done that Satan had a hold on Him. Satan had no voice in this. Uh, Satan gets his hold on us because of sin. But Christ, of course, had no sin. And Christ's death will be the defeat, as we'll, as we'll see, of Satan ultimately. Satan thinks it's, it's going to be a victory, uh, 
but it'll be his defeat. Um, um, I mean, the, that's the the world may f the the world may have thought, and they will think. Certainly, the religious leaders think that with the death of Jesus, you know, they have won, and the devil thinks that you know this this death is the defeat of the Son. Um, um, but ultimately, we'll see, and they will learn that Jesus is ultimately vindicated in his death. What he's doing is vindicated. That's where the resurrection comes in. If Jesus had just died, stayed in the tomb, there would be no vindication. There'd be no proof that this death was acceptable, that it accomplished. There would be no way to know that. Uh, so the resurrection is demonstration that God was satisfied with what Jesus did on the cross, that he had done all that the Father had commanded and so forth. Uh, now the world's going to learn this. <laughs> Everybody in the world learns this one way or another. We learn it <laughs> when we come to Christ. You know, when we come to Christ, we see, okay, I got it. This death was necessary. It wasn't a, it wasn't a, a defeat as it looks like. But to unbelievers in the world today, you know, it may look like a defeat. It may... Uh, now, most unbelievers are probably aren't going to say that to, because they've been raised in Christianity. They may have some knowledge. But, you know, just a lot of pagans will say, yeah, this Jesus was just... <laughs> it was sad, you know. He was a good man, but he just got crucified and his... His whole thing was a failure, you know, and all that kind of stuff. So, uh, but someday people will understand. Remember Paul says in Philippians 2, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So there's coming a day, we understand it right now, we recognize it right now, but there's coming a day when everyone will recognize what Christ has done, the significance of it, they'll see that, that this was really a, a victory, this was really a carrying out of God's plan and so forth. But they don't see it now, uh, and unbelievers don't really see what's going on right now at all either. Well, let's look at uh, chapter 15 then, Christ's uh, final discourse en route to the garden. Um, as Jesus... Uh, as Jesus and the eleven of his disciples left the upper room, they made their way toward the Kidron Valley and the Mount of Olives. So, you know, on the right over here is the Kidron Valley. I guess I should have brought a picture of that. But so this area here is um, this is on a this is a hill. Huh? Mount Zion here, and then, you know, you go down here, it's like, uh, you know, it's more than 100 foot down there to the Kidron Valley. It's, it's way more than 100 foot. So if you, if you go outside the city and you just kind of walk down there to the valley, you have to walk way down. And then the Mount of Olives on the right, you got to go way up. So there's a deep valley right there. 
So they're making their way to the Kidron Valley and ultimately to the Garden of Gethsemane there, uh, as you can see to the right there of the Temple Mount is where they're on their way. So I don't know the route, route that they took. I'm not sure. It could be a number of different ways, but I just drew an arrow there. So this is uh, continuing his discourse. Jesus is on his way to uh, the garden, Garden of Gethsemane. So they made their way toward the Kidron Valley and the Mount of Olives. We know this from the next geographical reference in 18.1. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. So he's on his way. This is happening. And we get that next geographical reference in 18.1. So on the way here, he gives this... Uh, uh, allegory about the vine and the branches. Let's look at that, John 15, 1 through 11. Uh, the vine and the branches speaks of this vital union of Jesus and the disciples, 15, 1 through 11. Jesus taught this truth by employing the figure of a vine and its branches. This figure is an extended metaphor or allegory. A metaphor is an indirect comparison of two things by establishing identity between them, such as when Jesus said, I am the bread of life. So he's comparing two things. I am the bread of life. That's a metaphor. So it's an unstated comparison. Um, this was, you studied this back when you were in English years ago, many, many some of you many years ago. <laughs> There's a thing called a simile. So if Jesus uses the word like, I am like the bread of life. We understand that. Well, both are comparisons, but that's a simile. I'm like the bread of life. That's stated. I am like this. He is like this. Uh, so, uh, but here it's unstated. I am the bread of life. But it's still this metaphor. So what is this allegory? An allegory is a long narrative, a long metaphor, a long one with many points of comparison where the story and its application are intermingled so it carries its own interpretation within itself like Pilgrim's Progress. So Pilgrim's Progress, if you read that, that's an allegory. I mean, the things, everything in there stands for something else. Pilgrim is, stands for a Christian. and So there's all these things that Pilgrim goes through in this story, but they all mean something, stand for something else. And that's what we have here in this vine and the branches allegory. Whether some immediate circumstances prompted the use of this illustration is not certain. Suggestions such as the real vine growing nearby, a real vine growing nearby maybe, or the use of wine of the supper, you know. However, it may be more likely to regard the statement of Jesus, I am the true vine, as a contrast to certain Old Testament passages in which Israel was called a vine. So many times in the Old Testament, Israel is compared to a vine. Uh, God says, I planted you like a choice vine of sound and reliable stock. How then did you turn against me into a corrupt and wild vine? So Israel is, is said to be planted as a vine, but then they got corrupted. And Jesus will say here, I am the true vine. I'm the true, in that sense, Israel. Uh, Israel was 
intended by God to be faithful and spiritually fruitful, but instead she had proved to be sadly deficient. Jesus, however, would be all that God wanted. And by a life-sharing union with Him, believers may have lives of fruitfulness. Let's look at that. Verse 1, I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit He prunes, so that it will be even more fruitful. The significant details of the allegory were interpreted by Jesus. He Himself is the vine. The Father is the gardener who cares for the vine with its branches so that the fruit might be produced. Has everybody seen a grapevine before? Because, you know, there's probably a lot of kids in our church that have never seen a grapevine, right? I mean, you don't, we don't see them every day. I don't know. But you got the vine, and off the vine comes the branches, right? And then off the branches come the... I mean, it seems a little odd. You got this vine, you got these wooden these branches coming off, but then you got the grapes coming off the vine. So you have to, of course, he didn't have to explain it to them. They're very familiar with it. But I was just thinking that there's got to be a lot of people, even in our church, who have never seen a grapevine. I haven't seen one in, well, I haven't seen one in years and years and years. I mean, unless you go to, unless somebody's got one. Can you grow grapes in Michigan? I guess you can. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh, does anybody have a grapevine here and there? Nobody has a. We used to have one when I was up. Yeah, people did, didn't they? Yeah, we did. I mean, down we had them down south. I know a lot of times. Um, so one time, uh, one time, <clears throat> we had an alley back behind our house, and um, people would play in the alley. You had some of those up here in Detroit, too. I know Ken says in his house in Ecorse, he had an alley there between houses, and we would play in the alley. But in the alley, we'd go down the street, there was a guy who had a, a grapevine, and they had grapes on you. Know, and we would go there and steal these grapes, you know, and get them, you know. And this guy got upset, and he accused us of, uh, you know, accused stealing grapes. And my mom always said, my, you know, Billy would never steal grapes. He would never <laughs> steal grapes. <laughs> when, when, well, yeah, when my mother came to live with us when she was you know, 80 years old, 81 years old, she would tell that story, I think, to Pansy, you know. I just never had the heart to tell her that I really did steal those grapes. <laughs> I never told her. <laughs> yeah, Mom, I really did. <laughs> she, didn't under, she didn't understand depravity. What? Did she? Uh, yeah. Yeah. A lot of the cherry orchards up in Traverse City are in our vineyards. Oh, okay. Yeah, a lot of wineries up there. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Well, so that's uh, something they would understand very well. Um, so he interprets this allegory. He himself is divine. The Father is the one who takes care of it. He's the gardener. The branches are persons who have professed faith in Christ. That's a key point. The branches are persons who have professed faith in Christ. These are two types of branches. There are two types of branches. Two types of professing Christians. There are fruit-bearing branches representing true believers 
who by their vital union with the vine exhibit fruit that is evidence of spiritual life. Then there are fruitless branches representing those attached in some superficial way to the vine, but without the vital life flowing through them to produce fruit. The fruitless branches represent the merely professing believers who are finally severed from their superficial connection with Christ. This had actually happened earlier in the evening with the removal of Judas from the group. So you got the 11. They're all professing. We're all professing Christians. We all profess faith in Christ. But Judas was a fruitless branch. Now, they didn't know it. Of course, remember, the disciples didn't get it. But he was not a true believer. He was not a fruit-bearing Christian. He was, he was fruitless. But he was attached in a superficial way to Christ. He made... He had professed his belief and faith in Christ. The role of the, far, the father, the heavenly gardener, is twofold. First, he cuts off every branch that bears no fruit so that it will be even more fruitful. Uh, I don't know if I, did I read verse 1? I am the true vine, my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. So we got this cutting off, we got this pruning. And I say here, he cuts off every branch. He gets rid of the dead wood so that living fruit-bearing branches may be distinguished from them and may have more room for growth. The purpose of this verse is to insist that there are no true Christians without some measure of fruit. Fruitlessness is an infallible mark of true Christian fruitfulness, fruitfulness is an infallible mark of true Christianity. The alternative is deadwood, professing Christians that have no life in them. They have never borne fruit, or else they would have been pruned, not cut off. Second, the Father prunes every branch that does bear fruit so that it will be more fruitful. So the unfruitful branches are cut off, Jesus says, they will ultimately be cut off. Uh, and the Father prunes the, the true branches so they'll be even more fruitful. I say this procedure may be painful as described as described in the discipling process, you know, in Hebrews, which says, my son, don't make light of the Lord's discipline. Don't lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as children, for what children are not disciplined by their father? If you're not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you're not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. Now much more we should submit to the Father of spirits and live. They disciplined us for a little while, as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in His holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, it produces a harvest of righteousness. See, there's a harvest, fruit, and peace for those who have been trained by it. So we're talking here about how God works on us as Christians. He works on us. <laughs> we're saved, we're born again, we're regenerate. We begin spiritual life, we start producing things, but God works on our lives, eliminating uh, sins, focusing on sins, getting us to confess, repent, 
to be more fruitful for Him. Verse 3, you are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. The initial cleanness, that's justification, being born again, of the disciples came through the word of Christ spoken to them. You're clean because of the word I've spoken to you. The fruit disciples, the fruit, uh, uh, the fruit disciples bear is the development of the spiritual life as the result of being a share of eternal life. Christ taught that this life-sharing relationship that is essential for bearing fruit is accomplished if one remains in Him. How does one remain in Christ? A comparison of other passages in John's writings show that confessing Jesus as the Son of God, that is, believing in Jesus, establishes the relationship of remaining. Thus, to remain in Christ is equivalent to believing in Christ. This relationship of remaining is initiated at the moment of faith and is continued as we walk in obedience to Him. Verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you don't remain in me, you are like a branch that's thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. The central thoughts of verses 1 and 4 are here repeated, but without the mention of the gardener or of the pruning. The ultimate alternatives are set out with simple starkness. One either remains in the vine and is a fruit-bearing branch, or one is thrown away and burned. So in this allegory of the vine, the true believer bears fruit. And the normal progression is fruit, more fruit, he said in 15.2, and in verse 15.5, much fruit. So there's an increasing amount of fruit. Verse 7, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in His love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Verse 5 said the disciples will bear much fruit. Verse 7 says one fruit is one fruit is successful prayer, verse 7. You know, if you remain in me, then you will ask what you wish and it will be done for you. Successful prayer. Verse, from verse 10, we learn that this remaining is equivalent to doing all that Jesus commands. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, he says, verse 10. Um, Jesus says that the obedient believer will have an effective prayer life since all that he or she asks for conforms to the will of God. We know that our chief aim is to glorify God. Remember that Westminster Catechism, what is the chief and highest end of man to glorify God, enjoy Him forever. And the disciples' fruitfulness in prayer brings glory to the Father. This is my Father's glory, verse 8, that you bear much fruit. As we remain in Christ, which is indicated by keeping His commandments, we will experience joy, he says, verse 11. I've told you that this is so, you may, so that my joy may be in you and your, and your joy may be complete. 
Okay, I'm sorry, we better cut, stop here tonight. And in the middle of this, we'll have to come back next time. Thank you very much. And Lord willing, we will see you next uh, time. Thank you.